The scripture uh, that we have for this morning is Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, which is undoubtedly going to be a familiar text uh, for most of you. When Pastor Ron asked me to send the scripture reading for the bulletin, I sent him Luke 15, 11 through 36, and he replied, um, in my Bible there are only 32 verses in in chapter 15, I said, well, you're obviously using a, a, a version where all the good stuff has been cut out. But I amended my, uh, my reading for that. So, uh, we're going to read uh, beginning at verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. I was walking through a home improvement store yesterday and was almost physically assaulted with all of the loud and strident reminders that today is Father's Day and by golly, you'd better get him a gift. And it just so happens that their aisles are practically overrun with great candidates. Now, I guess I I should have expected that because after all, home improvement stores are the kinds of places that most people think of when they think of getting something for dad. It's funny, isn't it, how our appreciation uh, of gifts changes over the years. When we're kids and someone asks you what you'd like as a gift, 
we usually have a, a list ready. If it isn't, isn't actually written out, we can usually rattle off several things that we would like. And socks and underwear are never on that list. As a father, though, you ask a father what he wants, and the father will usually say what? Nothing. Yeah, I don't want anything. But if you happen to get him socks and underwear, that always is welcome. Back to my trip to Menards there for just a second. It's funny that they can put a keychain with a penknife uh, over here right next to a laser-guided table saw right here and tell you both that they're both perfect Father's Day gifts. And I'm thinking, okay, do you go through and say, well, I've got more of a $2.50 kind of dad or a $750 kind of dad? I mean, how can they both be appropriate? What a racket. Now, this is particularly true because we rarely know what dad needs. Often we rack our brains just trying to think of something that dad likes, much less what he needs, because usually if dad needs something, what happens? Dad goes and gets it, doesn't he? And isn't that annoying? You know, it's like the day before Father's Day, just when you think, oh, I know what dad needs, he comes in from Menards and goes, oh, look what's on sale. You know, and then we don't know what to do. So, because of that, I have called this message a Father's Day gift. Because I believe that here is something that fathers actually need. And to be clear, I don't mean a sermon. All right? Fathers would rather have the penknife keychain uh, than, than, than a sermon. I, and what I mean is that the gift is what the sermon talks about. Now, as you know, a guest speaker's main job is to make the regular pastor look good. Uh, so I asked Pastor Ron, you know, how much do they need to appreciate you? And he said, if you preach, you know, 50, 60 minutes, he said, they'll welcome me with open arms when I come back. So just brace yourselves uh, for that. Now, truly, if we could provide what dads and, 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 and really everybody else really needed, if we knew what they needed and we could provide it, uh, we couldn't keep it in stock. If it were at Menards or from eBay, or, it would fly off the shelf. And Father's Day is one of those days when we really begin to appreciate the contrast between the gifts that we give and what the recipients really need. The gifts that we need are ultimately only God's to give. And the good news is that He readily and eagerly gives them. Father's Day also often highlights the contrast between what it is that we should be or should have been and what we are which is why we need these gifts in the first place. And I'll get to those gifts in just a moment. I will say, though, at this point, that if you have been blessed with a dad who gave you a, a better appreciation of God, who gave you a healthy idea or concept of what God is like, then you should thank God for that dad. And my wife and I have often reflected that our dads uh, did a great deal to give us a healthy appreciation of the fatherhood of God. And, and that's, uh, that's a tremendous blessing. But for many dads and for many children, Father's Day is a very mixed bag of feelings. It can be a complicated legacy. It's like the two boys who were walking home from church uh, after hearing a strong sermon on the devil and one said to the other, well, what do you think about all this Satan stuff? The other boy replied, well, you know how Santa Claus turned out. It's probably just your dad. So, in actuality... Dads, like it or not, tend to have a great deal to do with shaping their children's view of God the Father. 
that's an awesome and intimidating reality. To consider that my daughters Lydia and Billy will get a big slice of how they think about God from me really takes the wind out of my sails sometimes. And just because I wonder what kind of job I'm doing at it. And I've lost track of the times that I've thought, well, I really blew that. Dads bear a heavy burden, and so dads may be particularly attuned to this message. But don't turn out if you're not a dad. See, sometimes we come to church and we think, oh, it's Father's Day. Sermon's going to be aimed at dad. I can just sit back and relax. Don't. This is for everybody. This is a Father's Day gift, not because it's a gift for fathers. It's for anyone and everyone. It's a Father's Day gift because it's from the Father. And He offers these gifts to anyone. Years ago, I read the story of Corey Ten Boom called The Hiding Place. Many of you may be familiar with that. And she shared the story of when she was first arrested in the Netherlands for hiding Jews in her home. She was taken to a prison and put in a, a cell with other women and they, they were not allowed to have a Bible. So as they sat there and reflected on that, they all began to share what they remembered of the Bible and together they tried to sort of from memory piece together the Bible. And I, I thought a couple of things when I read that story. First of all, if I were put in that situation, how much of the Bible would I be able to remember? But secondly, I thought if I could only preserve one passage from the Bible one text or chapter or something like that, what would it be? What if somebody came along to you and said, we're taking the Bible away, but we're going to let you keep one portion of it. Uh, what would it be? Some would say, oh, I'd take the 23rd Psalm or I'd take the Beatitudes or even the Ten Commandments. For me, I wouldn't hesitate. It would be the story of the prodigal son. If I was told that I could only save one section of the Bible and the rest was going to be taken away, I would immediately choose the story of the prodigal son. This is for me the most illustrative in the whole Bible of God's relationship with His fallen creation. All of its beauty and tragedy, the simplicity and the complexity of putting that relationship to rights. And it's all captured in this story. And one of the things I find most amazing about this story is that when the wayward son returns... He receives all of the gifts. He's the one who's forgiven. He's the one who's restored. He's the one who's given a feast. He's the one who's treated like some special guest. And yet it is the Father who feels like He's the one that's been blessed. The Father acts as though He's the one who's been given a real gift. The Father seems to feel like He's made out better on this uh, deal, even though all He's received is the return of His wasteful and wasted son. The son, for his part, must have had to pinch himself to believe that this was, uh, was real and that he wasn't dreaming. I imagine him approaching the house. Now, Jesus says that when he was still a long way off, the father saw him and ran to him. Now, this would have been a shock for Jesus' audience because in those days, the patriarch of the family did not run. He would not have advanced toward the son he would have waited like a king for the, to receive the son into his presence. But Jesus depicts this father sort of picking up his robes and running toward the son. It would have been a shock to his audience, but it was illustrative at how, of how eager the father was to restore the relationship with the son. So he sees the son coming 
from a long way off and runs to meet him. And when he meets me, embraces him, and, and the son, I imagine him approaching his dad because he's been working on his apology this whole walk home. He starts to form it while he's in the pig pen, and he says to himself, What am I doing? My, my dad's servants live better than I do, so I need to go home. And he begins to work on his apology. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please just let me be like one of your hired servants. If I could just live in the servants' quarters and serve you, that would be more than I deserve. So he approaches the dad, and the dad hugs him. He begins to get his apology out, and he's not even allowed to finish it. The father cuts him off. He doesn't even get to the let me be a servant part. The father won't hear of it. He starts calling in the servants. And I wonder what went through the son's head at that moment. He can't even finish what he's about to say. He's trying to apologize to his dad. His dad doesn't even let him finish. He just starts calling for servants. And I wonder if just for a moment, if the son thought to himself, the dad's going to go, servants, throw this guy out and lock the gate behind him. Probably, I mean, that was a reasonable concern at that moment. Or maybe he dared to hope that the father would say, Show this wretch to the servants' quarters. Let him be like one of the hired men. He probably never dared to think that his father would react the way that he did, which was to grant him a reinstatement into the household and to give him those things, those gifts that we and he most desperately need. The three gifts that I'm just going to touch on are restoration, reconciliation, and redemption. I'll come back to those in just a second. Because there's another son in the story, of course. There's a son, the older one. He's the one who's concerned about the balance sheet of the farm. The sheep which have to be moved from one pasture to another. The cows whose milk quota has dropped a little bit. They're short-handed in the wheat harvest and he's just received word that one of the kitchen staff has been helping himself to the cooking sherry. His head is buzzing with all of the concerns about keeping the system functioning smoothly, helping everybody to stay on task, ensuring that the farm's reputation doesn't suffer. His principal reaction to the son's return is anger. It's profound annoyance. It isn't fair and it upsets his neatly ordered world. Furthermore, his father actually seems more excited about this younger son's return than about all the hard work that he has been putting into the farm. There are lots of amazing things in this story. And among the several amazing things is that we can be both sons. Incredible as it seems, it is quite possible and very often the actual case that at one point in our lives we are the prodigal son returning and being restored by the Father. And we can go from the grateful, astounded, awestruck younger son to the officious and busy and impatient elder son. A subtle but profound shift can take place in our thinking. We read this story and although we may not admit it, sometimes we sympathize with the older son. I know that I do. We can actually get to the place where, like the elder son, we think that we're giving stuff to God instead of receiving everything from Him. Where we think that worship is about getting everything right and where our, our joyful, hilarious relationship with our Welcoming Father can, is best expressed in committees and meetings and 
statements of doctrinal positions and budgets and staffing and, and getting it all right. We can get sidetracked by our preoccupation with the mechanics and perhaps convinced along the way that now God loves us better because we're getting it all right. Instead of discovering every day what the younger son learned, that God loves us extravagantly even when we get it all completely wrong. Now all that church stuff that I mentioned is important and I'm not making light of any of it and I'm not making light of anybody's feelings about it. What I'm saying is that we always need to remember what it felt like to be the younger son. And we need to revisit that moment when the robe was put around our shoulders and the sandals were put on our pig pen stained feet. When our empty belly was filled with the best that the house had to offer. When the ring was put on our finger and when we were declared that we were back in the family, not as a servant, but as a daughter, as a son. And when we do keep coming back to that, we remember why we do all of the churchy stuff. Why we care for the poor. Why we like the building to look nice. Why we gather for worship. And come in on a perfectly good Sunday morning to listen to some guy beat his gums for 20 minutes or so. 20 minutes, you'll be lucky. Um, we remember why worship and service and prayer is important because when we do all of that, we announce, I was lost and now I am found. I was dead and now I am alive. I was estranged and separated from the Father, but now I have been redeemed and reconciled and restored. What gifts did the father, did the, did the younger son really need from the Father? He needed redemption. He needed reconciliation. And he needed restoration. What gifts did the elder son need from the Father? Redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. What gifts do we need today? The very same. Redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. We never outgrow the need for those things. So I want to talk about these for just a minute. Redemption. It means to buy back what's been pawned or lost through indebtedness. In the Old Testament, if a person came into such a place of debt uh, that their only option, their only the way to restore their financial fortunes was to sell themselves into slavery. Then it was the obligation of the elder in the family to go and buy that person back out of slavery. That was called redemption. <clears throat> now, when I was a kid, the only time I ever heard the word redeem or redemption was in connection with S&H green stamps. Does anybody here know what those things are? All right, we have a certain vintage of people that remember S&H green stamps. You would go to the supermarket and when you bought something, one of the things that you got was uh, some S&H green stamps depending on how much you, you spent. My sister and I would sit at home and we would lick those things and stick them into the catalog or into the booklets and, and then save them up and then we would get out the S&H green stamp catalog and go through it and circle all the things we imagined we were going to get when we redeemed and that's the first time I learned that word. Those booklets full of stamps for whatever item of value we really wanted to get. So there's a similar idea there, but in, in a much greater sense, God takes that which has been lost or pawned or sold into slavery or lost through indebtedness and restores it, uh, uh, redeems it, brings it back, buys it out. For reconciliation... That's a word, again, we don't hear a whole lot anymore. Most of the time we hear it in terms of, 
of government. We talk about a budget, budget reconciliation process. But it means to take two things that are at odds or two parties that are warring or feuding and to make up the differences between them so that they can be at peace and that they can harmonize to reconcile those two groups one to the other. The last is restoration, which is to put whole what's been damaged uh, to make up what, what's been lost. Now, my hobby is restoring old cars. And if you've ever done any kind of restoration work, be it cars or, or houses or anything else like that, you develop a particular dislike for things like rust and mildew and rodents and insects and, and sometimes just as bad the efforts of previous owners. Undoing what's been put wrong and done wrong and, and making it right again, putting back what's been broken or lost or disfigured, is what restoration is all about. And particular to Father's Day, I talked to many dads, and I've talked to many dads over the years, but not just dads, other people too, who are filled with regret about the lost opportunities and wasted years. Sometimes the, the really bad actions uh, that they've committed in their own lives. And they wish they could travel back in time and, and undo all of that. And unfortunately, we can't. But we do have God's promise that He is going to redeem, He is going to reconcile, and He is going to restore. He says in Joel, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. He is going to produce a harvest so bountiful it's going to make up for all of the loss that the locusts had chewed up in previous years. We see in Jesus, after the uh, miracle of the loaves and fishes, saying, gather up the scraps, let nothing go to waste. That Jesus makes sure that even uh, the, the scraps and the broken pieces of our lives, nothing goes to waste. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, God works all things, all things, good and bad, to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. These gifts of the Father of, of redemption and reconciliation and restoration, these are the amazing gifts from the Father, the Father's Day gifts. What can we give Him? Only ourselves, which seems awfully small, and awfully petty, but He acts as if He's the one who has been blessed more. He acts as if He has made out better on the deal. That which we discover we really, really need and only can come for Him is restoration and reconciliation and redemption. Now, because God promises those things and because God gives us those things, it doesn't mean that we magically get to undo the consequences of our sin. Our actions have consequences. They have ripple effects. And we don't get a free pass from that reality just because we turn our lives over to Jesus. Whatever God's plan A was for our lives, we have all missed it. We've all missed it big time and we've all missed it many times and for most of us, a long time ago. Most of us are not on plan B. We're plan on, on plan Q to the 64th power. If there were only plan A and everything else is, is, is uh, poor second best, well, we'd be a pretty grim gathering, wouldn't we? It'd be like that old saying that if you really want to get better at golf, start at a much younger age. Well, it's too late. In other words, by the time we realize that we've blown it, it's too late and that's too bad. 
But neither is it like that other expression from golf. Uh, and I don't know how many golfers that we have here, but you may have heard this one where you take 11 strokes to get to the green and then you sink a 30-foot putt. They call that whipped cream on horse manure. All right? So everything has been a disaster and then you kind of finish strong or something. God does much, much better than that. When we give over our past, our mistakes, even our sins and the, and the destruction to Him and begin to do the right thing, He's going to bless it. And even though it has gone way, way past plan B, He can make something beautiful with it. He's the one who gives beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, and a garment of praise to replace the spirit of despair, says Isaiah 61. All through the prophets in the Old Testament, we read of God's promises to take Israel, that rebellious, stumbling, sinful, willful nation, Despite all of their sin, many, many detours from His plan, He promises He's going to restore and reconcile and redeem them and make something beautiful out of the wreckage. And He did. He brought Jesus out of the, that, that wayward nation. And if He can bring Jesus out of that mess, no one's mess is beyond His redemption. None of these promises are going to be entirely filled, fulfilled in this lifetime. But God will keep His promises. And often we'll get to see the beginnings of their fulfillment in this lifetime. Now, years ago, Windows or Microsoft uh, issued a, a, a welcome feature to their Windows uh, uh, platform operating system. I am not a computer guy by any means. It's probably already been revealed. If you are a computer type person, you're out there thinking, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You're right. All right, I'll, I'll admit that. But I know a little bit about them. And years ago, when they came out with their most uh, recent version of their operating system, they included something called System Restore. Now, any Mac people here? Not a one. Just in case you have them. Oh, there we go. Uh, uh, a sheepish admission is a, not welcome in this church, apparently. Uh, Mac calls it Time Machine, I believe. So. Uh, Windows calls it System Restore. Now, some people have argued that if Windows worked the way that it should, that a feature like System Restore wouldn't be necessary. But Windows, life, life, like life, doesn't always work the way it should, does it? Uh, Bill Gates once criticized the auto industry. He said, if General Motors built cars like the computer industry builds computers, cars would cost $300 and get 100 miles to the gallon. General Motors reasonably responded, yes, but the cars would crash twice a week. So, Windows doesn't always work like it should. So how does System Restore work? Suppose you suffer a crash on your computer on Thursday. Now, you're not a computer expert, and you don't know how to recover the last two weeks of financial information that you put into the computer. Uh, you don't know how to recover your daughter's history report that she put in on Wednesday. Or the, where you got on your favorite game. All you have to do is select System Restore and specify the date uh, that you want your machine to reset to. And voila, problem solved. All the things you somehow messed up are put back in their configuration as of earlier, or of that earlier day. Wouldn't it be great if we had a System Restore for human lives? Do you think that you could supply enough of that feature to keep up with the demand. People would come and, and, and they would select System Restore for all kinds of places in their lives. 
Sue would go back to the day before she tampered uh, with payroll data. Bob would system restore to the day before he began an affair. Irving would choose the day before the big fight that caused his son to run away from home. Maybe you can remember a day when things crashed for you and you'd give anything you own if you could restore things to the way that they were before. This is the promise of God. He won't erase all the consequences of our actions, but He promises something far better. To forgive us, to work for the highest good even through what is bad, and one day to make all things new. As C.S. Lewis described it in one of his books, in heaven God will make all the sad things become untrue. What Windows calls System Restore, God calls Redemption and Reconciliation and Restoration. It's His Father's Day gift to us. And not just Father's Day, but every day. So every day, enjoy these gifts from your Father. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your gifts. Your mercies that are new every morning because we need them new every morning. We need Your redemption. We need Your reconciliation and Your restoration every day. We ask that we would appreciate those gifts every day. That we would always have the astonishment and the gratitude of the Son who was welcomed back with open arms. We ask that we would always hear the assurance given the elder Son that everything that You have is ours. And that Your love for us is extravagant and it is not dependent on how we do. Thank You, Lord. May this delight fill us every day. Thank You for Your abundant and generous Father's Day gifts. Amen.